Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Welcome to the public lecture titled Yellow Christianity with Dr. Jonathan Tran. This event is co-sponsored by the Asian Association of Princeton Theological Seminary, the Korean Student Association, and the Center for Asian American Christianity, which I direct. I am gonna be your host today, Dr. David Chow. I'm going to introduce our speaker for this afternoon. Jonathan Tran holds the George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, USA. His research explores the theological implications of the human life and language, especially focusing on the grammar of Christian speech. Most recently, he authored Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. The floor is yours. Let's welcome you. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, thank you for the for PTS and the community and the various centers for hosting me. I should say again, this community has been one of the most important uh, in my moral formation, in my intellectual formation, and certainly in the formation of this book. Um, literally, this community was uh, the site of a workshop on this book some three years ago. Um, and it was deeply formative in its thought patterns and a number of folks in the room, uh, uh, Bonnie, John, David, others uh, in this community contributed mightily uh, to the book. And I hope that the book reflects that in ways that uh, are agreeable to you all. Um, so it makes sense to kind of return uh, to this site to think about some of these things. So, uh, so I wanna say a few things about what I'm hoping to do today. Um, in relationship to some other things I've been doing with the book. So uh, I've been on um, kind of visiting different universities, different institutions, talking about the book, maybe answering for the book, um, trying to kind of bring out certain themes. And I've done something different in almost every context, uh, depending on the particular questions, um, the particular communities that I was a part of. So last night I did something very different at the university and thinking through how I conceptualize these questions that I'm going to do today. And what I want to do today is a bit more pastoral. Uh, I'm going to take the license of being at a seminary uh, and with folks who are thinking about the church, uh, thinking about ordination and thinking about their pastoral roles to others. Um, and so I'll, 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 it's going to be a different kind of posture, and I hope you'll allow for that uh, as I think through just really a couple questions or issues within Asian American Christian life in particular. So for um, for others, this will I imagine this will be a little bit of a listening in to a community and a way of thinking about some of these questions. If during the Q&A you want to uh, broaden out to other kinds of questions about how I thought about some of these questions, some of the philosophical and theological material uh, that went into it, larger questions about race and racism, uh, concepts of racial capitalism, I very much welcome those, but I'm going to focus on a specific set of questions in the remarks for today. So, and uh, want to say welcome to those in the room and certainly those who are with us virtually. So, so little backstory, uh, this book, Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, used to be called Yellow Christianity. 
And uh, there's a couple of reasons why it's not called Yellow Christianity, namely um, the publishers who are people I very much respect, Oxford University Press, told me that their board got together and mulled over whether Yellow Christianity was an acceptable title. And they said, we've thought about it hard, Jonathan. We've decided it's completely unworkable. Uh, and I think they imagine it would carry too much controversial baggage for a book that was already gonna face an uphill battle in terms of controversial baggage. Um, but I wanna return to that in some sense, reclaim that, uh, what I was thinking with Yellow Christianity. I also wanna say, or maybe blame David Chow for the title, because David is actually the one that came up with the title uh, that they, you know, that we, they went with. And I think partly Oxford was very excited about this title because it's very searchable by Google. <laughs> so, um, so it does have the word capitalism in it, right? So, um, so here's what I want to talk about. Um, and again, to kind of strike the pastoral note. So oftentimes when Asian Americans think about the, the concepts or the practices or the habits of speech around something called the model minority myth, they tend to think about a few things. And so for those of you that don't know what the model minority myth is, it's the idea that in a sense, it's, it's basically two kinds of moves. One, all Asian Americans are the same Asian American and all Asian Americans are successful Asian Americans. And it takes a certain model or image of success and it applies it or imposes it upon whole swaths of people. And, and there's several problems you can see right away with the idea that all Asian Americans are the same Asian American, right? Insofar as Asia and Asian American history and experience names a multiplicity of languages, histories, immigration stories, uh, cultural experiences in America, cultural experiences in Asia, trans-Pacific or transnational realities. And so the very idea that they could all be captured under one category and that that category can have the content of race, uh, which further has the substance of, say, white, black race, is on the face of it, um, right, unpersuasive, on the face of it, suspicious. And so what folks who have resisted the model minority myth have done is to try to point out the absurdity, the unpersuasiveness. Then the second smart move that those who have resisted the model minority myth, the second smart move is to ask, insofar as it's obviously problematic, insofar as the concept obviously is absurd or doesn't work, then they've asked the good question of what is it doing? If it doesn't work, why does it tend to have so much purchase or currency in our society? And these clever readers of the model minority myth have then stepped back and recognized that it has a kind of disciplinary tool, that it's a disciplinary tactic. And insofar as it's a disciplinary tactic, it really fits within the whole discourse of race itself, right? Because race is a disciplinary measure, a disciplinary regime built into, as I argue, and others have argued, into the basic political economy of American life. And I'll say more about that in a second. What is the disciplinary move like? Well, it goes like this. Here's a group of minorities, people who started from the bottom, experienced racism, say that and as in addition to the, the, the challenges and the tragedies of being immigrants, often with 
hard immigrant histories. These people experience xenophobia and racism and all the challenges that people of color do. And yet, because they're able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, by industry and sheer force of will, we're able to go from the bottom rungs of society and ascend to the top rungs and through uh, structures or media like Harvard University or Yale University or Princeton University. And what is the disciplinary tactic? Well, it's pretty clear then. The tactic is to say to all of you other people of color, you also ought to pull yourselves up by the bootstrap. Stop complaining about structures and systems because insofar as this group has made it, they serve as a kind of counterexample to your suggestion that no one can make it who is a person of color, right? And so the disciplinary ploy is to say, here's a model for how all of you people of color ought to be. Implication being, if you complain about structures and systems, it's on you, not on the structures and systems. Right. That's the disciplinary tool that a lot of Asian American scholars and people who think about and really people who live under the model, both Asian Americans, as those ascribed as Asian Americans, and those other people of color have recognized this is obviously a ruse. I want to say that this work is critically important. It's critically important to recognize this in order to step back and understand how race is generally always operating and to recognize the ways in which race is at its heart a divide and conquer strategy. It is a way of saying, here's how to be a minority, get in line like them, and then to separate, the, the, separate out the masses of people of color to pit them against one another, right? Now it's various people of color under the strains and stresses of a political economy Right, and the highlighting, the championing, the amplifying of the voice of one of them over and against the other. Uh, one of the things I try to show in the book is that this is at the heart of what race thinking is. In some sense, I argue that the white-black binary, something else we Asian Americans rail against, right? if it wasn't invented, it would have to have been invented. In a sense, there's an inevitability to the logic of the white-black binary. Because, right, and as we all know, hopefully at this point, that race isn't naming, say, biological difference. Race isn't fundamentally about difference. It's about differentiation. It's not about, right, diversity. It's about stratification. These are things that uh, Cedric Robinson recognized easily and early when he looked at labor strategies in England and recognized the first applications of the concepts of race were not between, say, white Europeans and sub-Saharan Africans, it was in relationship to different types of Europeans in order to make critical labor and property distinctions, right? We could do the same thing with Asian Americans and say, well, why, you know, the absurdity of the categories also lays bare that the application of race on Asian Americans, right, makes clear, reveals, exposes the political economic nature of what's going on when we call Asian Americans, right, a race in relationship to certain realities of property and labor, which is large swaths of the history of Asian Americans. So, so this first recognition of what the model minority myth is doing as a disciplinary strategy 
is a critically important intervention. But I want to suggest that that is one of the pernicious effects of the model minority myth, one that it gets it wrong and it gets it wrong on purpose, right? Th that's a critical intervention. But I want to suggest, especially for Asian Americans, and this is the pastoral movement, one of the critical things for Asian Americans is to recognize another pernicious aspect of the myth. And what is it? It's not that the myth is inaccurate. I think that's obvious. It's not that it's disciplinary against other races. I think that's fairly obvious. It's specifically that the model minority myth tempts Asian Americans into it. It offers a picture of what it looks like to be Asian American and says to Asian Americans, go get it. This is you, right? The, love, the story of the upward mobility, the climbing of social classes, the possession and acquisition within political economic structures, it's the suggestion that you ought to go and get it. I want to suggest that this is an underappreciated power of the myth. That maybe we think to ourselves, it's so obviously inaccurate, no one would believe it, and no one would give herself to it. And yet it seems to me, if you look back, there's quite a few of us Asian Americans who seem to have imbibed this narrative as a script for how to be American. That it, in a sense, it is the yellow face version of the American dream. And the problem of doing this isn't simply right inhabiting a script when you might have otherwise pursued and inhabited other scripts. It's that the pursuit and the accomplishment of this script, this version of the American dream, within the larger context of racial capitalism cannot help but be achieved by participating in and perpetuating extreme forms of injustice. Now, be, to be clear, I am not making a claim that that is specific to Asian Americans. That is an American story. But I want to suggest that Asian Americans are particularly vulnerable to it insofar as they allowed the model minority myth to story and script their lives. We need to give as much attention to that in Asian America than we do to the other aspects of the myth that are obviously and pretty obviously problematic. But part of my argument is that there is a tendency to emphasize those two problems and underestimate this side of the problem and that these go hand in hand, right? What do I mean? So let me unpack some of this for you. There's, there's a lot there. So let me give you two examples. Uh, one, a large case study that I fill out in the front end of the book, and a second, a smaller case study on the second about what it means to fill out the myth by way of perpetuating um, uh, and participating in systems of inequality, domination, and exploitation. So this will require me to step back a little bit and offer my account of racial capitalism. And then it's within this framework that I'll tell this big case story, uh, this big case example, and then this smaller one, one historical and one contemporary. And, and I hope that these are somewhat familiar. 
So in my account of racism, racism, it contrasts itself with what I call the popular or maybe overly convenient account of racism. And this one will be recognizable to almost everyone. In this account, racism is fundamentally and primarily about individual attitudes or behaviors. Individuals are possessed of stereotypes, wrong beliefs, bad intentions towards other people of color. And so I, as an Asian American, feel and think and presuppose certain things about Latinx people, right? And these bad beliefs or attitudes, stereotypes, right? These things then drive me sometimes to act in an untoward way, maybe forms of discrimination, stereotyping, pigeonholing, what have you, towards other people. In this account, the individual um, forms of racism and these attitudes or these beliefs sometimes rise to the levels of structures and systems, but that's not the main story. The main story is the individual approach. If that's what it is, then what does anti-racism comprise itself of? Primarily correcting these individual attitudes or beliefs. And in a sense, you can map out here a large swaths of strategies that often go under the terms or the banners of diversity or diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's correct the source material and we'll correct the racism. I wanna see that this picture is entirely all too convenient. Um, it allows us to do several things. Namely, it allows us to right, identify the racist as always out there, uh, never in here. It allows us to imagine racism as an isolated and almost accidental affair, not necessary to the systems and structures that we live in. It allows us, in a sense, to both participate in these systems while virtue signaling mainly by calling out and canceling others, all the while participating in systems ourselves as beneficiaries. Um, so it, it has these kinds of internal rhetorical and existential strategies built into it. I want to suggest rather that racism in a sense works in a somewhat converse way, right? It's not that racism is sometimes structural and systemic. It sometimes rises to the level of institutions. I wanna say that in some sense, it's always that. And that the individual attitudes and behaviors and beliefs and bad intents are productions of those structures and systems. In my account of racial capitalism, what racial capitalism is or what racism is, is a society that has built itself around extraordinary dehumanizing forms of domination and exploitation that then allows the justification justification using local myths around race to justify its practices. So an example, when I drive around my city, Waco, Texas, I notice certain types of infrastructures and investments, certain communities and neighborhoods. Some people have access to healthcare, education, others don't. And when I drive through those communities that do not, and I see the schools have not been invested in, I see that people don't have easy access to healthcare, to grocery stores, to financial industries. Instead of asking myself a question like, what kind of society do we have that we've created something like this? We say this, 
It's on them. It's their fault. It's natural to who they are. It's in their race. It's because they're brown. It's because they're black. I want to say that this ideological structure, which I describe in the book as a relationship between use, identity, and justification as a kind of moral psychology, is how race is built out. Race and racism are built out into our society. What this then creates is a society that perpetuates itself by use, right? Identi I mean, use, identification, and justification that then sets up wide systems and structures of exploitation. In a sense, that's all you need to do to benefit is simply lean in to a society that allows you these kinds of exploits uh, and these kinds of benefits. In the book, I try to offer two examples. Um, and notice what I'm trying to do here is dial down the hyperbolic images of racism that we tend to operate with. Right? What I mean by hyperbolic image of racism is what the red-faced sheriff armed with attack dogs, setting his German shepherds loose on you know, the poor civil rights workers at the, at the civil rights sit-in. Or maybe we imagine a person with a, a KKK hood hidden somewhere in his closet. Or maybe we even imagine the redlining mortgage worker. I say that these tend to be hyperbolic, sensational, exaggerated pictures of racism that, again, are all too convenient. Rather, I want to imagine systems of housing, education, healthcare, where a lot of us, not just the person with the Klan outfit hidden in the closet, not just the red-faced sheriff, a lot of us lean into on a daily basis and benefit from. Within this system, it's much harder to narrate your way out by blaming individuals. Rather, you're going to need to take stock of the society you live in, and the role you play within it, right? Within this story, in a sense, dialing down the hyperbolic is in a sense to look at things like gentrification, right? Redlining, to rec recognize that in some sense, redlining in, in some significant sense was redundant internal to systems of white flight. They both had clearly operations of race and racism in there. The agency is switched out. Uh, it's not the hyperbolic racists, it's all of us that benefit from this reality. Um, and that's why we tend to have this kind of virtue signaling moment, as if to say, in a sense, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. The examples I offer in the book are, and I'll go through this quickly, though folks can ask me more about it. Examples I offer in the book are migrant Chinese workers thrown into the South at the end of the Reconstruction era, or the beginning of the Reconstruction era, we then live under the terrors of Jim Crow between, in a sense, white and black society. On the one hand, they're exploited, racialized, racism, dominated, violated. On the other hand, they find a way through a niche economy to participate in these very systems that are dominating them. And through practices of exploiting neighbors, they become simultaneously wealthy and, because of Southern Baptist Christianity, Christian. That's one picture. And I want to say that this, in a sense, is a more accurate picture of how racism works. These people are not driven by anti-Blackness. Anti-Blackness is, in a sense, a product of this life as it goes on and on. 
A second example I give in a more contemporary context is what sociologists call resource hoarding. The hoarding of resources that are considered and articulated um, and suggested as being scarce and the rapid competition for the sake of hoarding those resources to retain them in a family or in a community in a specific strata of society. Uh, and the example I use is in contemporary San Francisco around fights about education um, in kind of elite high schools in San Francisco. And what you see there is Asian Americans often perpetrating law cases to get continue to have access and it's sometimes majority domination of these local schools. I tell some even more kind of unsavory stories about Asian Americans participating at local elementary schools, hoarding resources so that their children have advantages over other children. All in the name, right, whether it's recognized or not, of fulfilling the model minority myth. So what I've tried to say is in a sense, this is what racial capitalism is. This is the way, these are the ways some Asian Americans have participated in it. What I've also tried to say is that this, I think is a more accurate picture of how racism tends to operate in our society over and against the hyperbolic images. What I wanna say in terms of Christian discipleship is that what Christians need is a mode of moral formation that is able to resist these tendencies. What are the modes of moral formation that might name and identify and then begin to resist these forms of participation and perpetuation? And let me tell a story here, a kind of conceptual story, and then, um, and then offer some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, so early Alistair McIntyre, uh, many of us don't know, was a Marxist in London. Uh, he began his kind of career as a Marxist, trying to think through uh, various features and commitments within Marxism. He was writing for an, a magazine called The Marxist Reasoner. Marx, I mean, uh, McIntyre writes a series of articles suggesting that there's some inherent contradictions um, within English Marxism. Namely, Marxists are those who, in some sense, have rejected the terms of normativity and morality as part of the substructure of oppression, while at the same time pulling them out when convenient to issue forms of moral critique that then became incoherent on their own terms. What McIntyre was saying is that we Marxists need sources of moral claims and sources of normativity that we can trust, but in a sense since we've taken the ground out from under them. So it was a challenge put to Marxists to account for your own revolutionary practices. If that was the deconstructive side of the argument, the constructive argument was something he articulates quite well in his most recent book, Ethics and the Conflicts of Modernity, where he says, what moral formation makes for revolutionary lives? Especially in the face of forms of vulgarization of the types I just described. That the people who are oppressed in some sense put themselves in systems of self-vulgarization that then in a sense, the oppressed become the oppressors. And what McIntyre was suggesting was the necessity, and this in a sense is his way of articulating his entire philosophical project, the necessity for moral communities to produce people capable of Marxist revolution. In a sense, he was asking the question, Marxists want revolution, where are they going to come from? 
what I want to adopt from McIntyre in his specific reading of Aristotle and Aquinas and his account of virtue is I want to adopt that and make a claim on that for Asian Americans in terms of Christianity. I want to say that what Asian American Christianity is what I want to call yellow Christianity is the condition for the possibility of being formed to see the world as shot through with justice and mercy in the very face of being socialized into racial capitalism, being socialized into the model minority myth. L let me restate that. What I want to imagine yellow Christianity is, is a mode of moral formation, right, that makes possible seeing the world as shot through with justice and mercy in the very face of racial capitalism, in the very face of racialization into the model minority myth. In the second half of my book, I try to give an account of a community that does something like this, that being raised in privilege, uh, they, in a sense, if they did not choose out of it, they would be sitting within these streams of participation and perpetuation. But because of these encounters with Jesus in these various kinds of mission projects in the city where they come to terms with racial capitalism, they're apprised that their lives need to take a different kind of direction. At the invitation of the black church in what's known as Black San Francisco, this church is invited in through neighborly love to have a certain kind of presence in this community. It's through this church and this community that these folks began to dispossess themselves of these advantages. And in their own narration, the way they articulate it is it's not because they're good, it's because they're needy. It's because this kind of community, these kinds of neighborhood are the sites of the works of God, right? That God is on the side of these folks and they wanna go and make their lives there. And in living in these neighborhoods, it apprises them of one, how they are participating in perpetuating systems of injustice and how they might live otherwise to be people more aware of God's justice and mercy running through the world. This story, I wanna suggest the upshot I want you to take from this story isn't right, that this is an ideal community and Christians should go and live similar ideal communities. The question then being who can do that? Rather, I wanna suggest that this is not a picture of ideal community. This is a picture of Christians claiming the power of Christ to live redeemed and repentant lives of repair. In other words, the driver isn't the desire to be good, though that is part of it, but it's primarily the attempt to dispossess ourselves of the advantages that accrue to us by inhabiting certain parts of the political economy. It's a way of saying, if I don't live like something like this, my tendency just by the sheer momentum of American life will be to live like that. And it's the recognition of those stark contrasts that you then need to make a very intentional set of decisions that I wanna say on the one hand is novel, on the other hand, is as old as the grammar of Christian discipleship. And the other thing I want to claim about this community is that it is within the context of living like this that the world shot through justice and mercy becomes increasingly clear. In other words, there is a metaphysics here aligned next to a hermeneutics. That is, to see the world as deeply connected in Christ, that Christ's love translating to the world of sin looks like justice and mercy and practices processes of repair, 
that this becomes only visible by living in faithful modes of discipleship. Otherwise, outside of those practices, these things are very hard to see. They have to be formed in you. You have to be cultivated to see the world this way. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about yellow Christianity as the condition of the possibility of seeing the world like this. That you have to be formed in a community to be able to see these kinds of natural realities of the world. One of the things I argue in the book is that justice and mercy is natural to the world because justice and mercy is natural to God. Those who live that way are merely leaning into the things that they already believe and have claimed about the world insofar as they're Christian. But the other side of that is to say you can only see that by living into it. The world, in a sense, and it's a spiral, a kind of hermeneutic spiral that these things become increasingly clear, but it is very hard to see from the outside. From the outside, mostly what you will see is systems and possibilities for your own benefit by leaning into systems of exploitation. So let me, that's a lot. So let me close with a story uh, that I think gets at some of this. One of the stories I tell in telling the story of the church I describe in the second half of the book uh, in the context of racial capitalism is a church called Redeemer Community Church. It's a Presbyterian church uh, that's been in black San Francisco for about two decades. Uh, they do a number of things. On the one hand, uh, they created a software business that then allows them to redistribute money to local neighborhoods. They, they try to then have different forms of repair by way of local elementary school different types of neighborhood programs, et cetera, et cetera. It's a remarkable community by any measure. One of the people who is a part of this community, uh, this person I describe it, I, doc, I talk about in the book, is a young woman who is a graduate of Stanford University. And she tells a story, I believe it was in her sophomore year, uh, of being overwhelmed to the point of what, having what she calls um, a depressive episode. She felt paralyzed and what were the pressures operating on her she describes stanford maybe like a princeton university as a place where you're told two things from day one then in a sense the world is going to hand in a hand going to hell in a handbasket and that you're there to save it that's why you're at stanford and so what stanford is going to do is both apprise you to how quickly the world is going to hell in a handbasket whether it be systems of injustice, environmental degradation, forms of political exploitation, the death of political life, et cetera, they apprise you of that. And to say that you're, insofar as you're at Stanford, insofar as you've been elite, accepted into this elite space, you are especially well positioned to fix it. What she describes with this kind of to save the world mentality, which that was often the language at Stanford University, is that over time, it just began to weigh on her. The more she learned about the world, the less, she, the less willing she was to close her eyes to the world, the more she recognized that these pressures were bigger than anything she could ever do. And I think like any sane, healthy person, she began to kind of collapse under this pressure. She refused the pretense that the world was both this difficult, had this many evils, this many injustices, and that somehow she alone could save it. And so she had this depressive episode where she could not continue school. She dropped out of Stanford for the quarter and she found her way to the Redeemer community. What she says she found there was not a people who were extraordinary, 
who say we're using gifts in ways that no one else ever had. They weren't people who were better or morally more upright um, or who were more steeled than everyone else. They were, as she describes, very ordinary people trying to live minimally faithful lives as they understood it. In other words, she saw a picture of the struggles of the world and a mode of Christian presence in that world that then became accessible for her, a way into the story that wasn't, in a sense, simply rejection, hiding your head in the sand, or overwhelmment as you try to save it. What she, she describes this experience of being, as she describes, um, washed in the liturgy, a wash in the liturgy, the litany of the story of the metaphysics of God's salvation of the world and our participation in it. And she says it washed over her. And so she imagined then her Christian life, not as the need to save the world, but to claim and witness to the fact that the world had been saved in Christ. Justice and mercy are natural to the world because God created that way and God saved it that way. And her job as a Christian was to lean into this reality as a refusal of the terms uh, of the model minority myth. So that's what I want to suggest as a picture for Asian American Christians is that we have before us a script, in a sense, of the model minority myth and its forms of participation within the political economy I described and other scripts that I think are more imaginative, more powerful, avail other sets of possibilities. In order to live into this, to be able to see it, in a sense, you have to begin to practice it. Otherwise, this will always, in a sense, position itself beyond our reach as unimaginable. And the most realistic thing you will be able to imagine is really the first set of options. What Asian Americans can do and what Asian American Christians can do is continuously give witness to this other set of options. Um, which I want to argue is built into the very foundations of the world. Thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at LTIAA.com.